Welcome to the Liver Health Podcast. As you know, all our listeners know that uh, we explore all aspects of liver health and tonight is no different. Tonight we're going to talk about fatty liver. Uh, so if you're interested in fatty liver as a diagnosis or want to know how to treat it, then they're the topics that we're going to discuss tonight. Now, I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Professor Paul Gow, Professor John LaBelle. Welcome, gentlemen. Good evening, Will. Now... Good hello, evening. Hold on. Can I say hello as well? You can say hello. Hello, Hi, Will Paul. and John. You're looking really well tonight. Like, have you had a makeover or shaved a beard off or what's no. different? You're looking like you're sparkling tonight. I've had some chicken liver pate this evening and um, it's rejuvenated me. Now, Paul, this concept of fatty liver, we didn't hear about this decades ago. It seems like there's a new disease that has just emerged out of the ether. Is that a fair comment? That's a re- it's a really fair comment. Like I finished my medical schooling in the mid nineteen eighties, and being generous, but um, <laughs> and I it was it didn't exist as a diagnosis at least at a medical school level. And in preparing for today's discussion, I looked back at the literature and was really first described in nineteen eighty. So this disease, and we're going to talk about it a bit later, but it's now probably one of the most common diseases in the world was not described medically four decades ago. And that is really, really interesting because almost certainly it was there but not recognised. But also we have changed as a species in that last, you know, 40 years. I mean, actually, if you look back, it's been described, fatty liver has been described um, before this date, but not so much in humans, in animals. And in fact, the French make foie gras pâté. And that literally means in French... Fatty liver. So actually the history in, in animals and eating the food or products of fatty liver um, goes back um, f- so a few hundred years BC. Um, and in fact the Egyptians were the first who recorded the fact that geese, before they migrated, used to eat pl- lots of food and their livers used to engorge, become fatty, and it was a delicacy at that time. And then the Egyptians realised that they could actually use that to, to make a, a delicious liver pate and i'm assuming the geese weren't doing that because they loved eating so much but they were doing it to store energy for their journey absolutely this is this is a a a reservoir of energy like um, we would produce fat as well um, underneath our skin uh, in the abdominal cavity um, so around your around your your mid abdomen but also in your organs as well including liver, muscles, you can, you can deposit fat. So under the right circumstances, then this fat can be mobilised and used by the cells for energy. Yeah, this is, this, is a, this is the natural battery which the geese were using for long migration, thousands of kilometres, so that they didn't starve on their journey. Um, I mean, the foie gras story is... I, I, I was joking today about pâté, but I wouldn't actually get foie gras pâté, because it's, a, it's actually a cruel... Um, method of, of producing fatty liver it's actually force feeding geese um, food to make their livers fat um, but it was it was described in france and it's got a, a, an ancient history um, in french cuisine um, so it's it's, it's known about in cuisine anyway so our non-foie gras pate john how's that made how is that different from foie gras, it, foie gras? well it's all about the content of the fat so, so the, the fat content in foie gras is very high. So it's almost a creamy, buttery pâté, whereas a normal pâté is sort of darker and, and doesn't contain so much fat, not so creamy. And these 
these commercial paddies are non-force fed geese. Correct, correct, correct. In fact, this what we're having tonight is chicken pate. So we should circle back because we've started talking about fatty liver and just make sure that we're all talking about the same thing and our listeners understand um, what we mean by fatty liver. Paul, do you? What do you mean when you say fatty liver? Yeah, medicine has made something really simple, really complicated. And there's a lot of terms for really the same condition. And those terms are non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or um, metabolic-associated fatty liver disease or just fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Did I say that one? Yeah, you did. (laughs) Um, Which sometimes people say naffled. Naffled, or naffled, or maffled. Yeah. Um, in its essence, though, fatty liver is exactly what it says. It's fat within the liver. But in fact, what causes that can vary. And the reason why I think terms like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease ever arose was because in the original description in the 1980s, there were a group of people who didn't drink alcohol who had fatty liver, and it was well recognised if you drank alcohol, you could get fatty liver. But in this group of people who did not drink alcohol there was a, a new phenomenon um, because there, there was alcohol was not the cause. Uh, but, you know, other things can cause it. Other drugs can cause fatty liver. Um, so it's, it, is, it is a bit of minefield. But I think if we just stick to those people who have fatty liver disease not associated with alcohol or other drugs, um, it w- w- we'll be much clearer, I think. And when you've been told by your doctor or your GP or a health professional that you've got fatty liver or fatty liver disease, that's what we're talking about tonight. And how would that be picked up, though, Paul? Do you, do you know how roughly the, the most common way of being picked up? How would patients know that they have fatty liver? The most, well, the most common referral pattern I see is people who have a checkup bloods, their liver blood tests are abnormal, their GP does the usual things to exclude viral, you know, viral infections, etc. And that is the referral. So almost always there's no symptoms and it's picked up on a blood test the alternative, also common, um, means that it's recognised is people have an ultrasound of their liver and the liver looks abnormal, you know, meaning it's full of fat. Mm. But it, it's really important, I think, for people to recognise that most, almost everybody has no symptoms associated with a diagnosis. Some people have abdominal pain, don't they? Or, they, or you know, the swollen liver, just like the, the geese that are overfed, the liver can become big. Uh, and people do get some stretching of the, the liver capsule or skin and, and can get some mild discomfort. But I think that's a fairly vague symptom, but it's, I think some people do have that. Probably some people do have that. There's a variety of symptoms associated yeah. with it. I think most importantly, people should think they don't need to have symptoms to consider the diagnosis in themselves. And, and yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think that if the patient is complaining of pain and discomfort, then I'm thinking there's another diagnosis more often than not. But Paul, can I take you back a second? You can take, I, John, you can take me back a second or a minute, if you like. <laughs> because you normally say that to us. But, uh, but can I just take you back to a comment you said? You said it's the most common disease um, in the world at the moment. Just tell us about the magnitude of the problem, fatty liver, and um, what it really means to, to the world. Well, all we've got are estimates, of course, because you need... Because actually, medically, the diagnosis is slightly complicated. You know, you need some sort of scan and a whole lot of blood tests. And most of the world don't have access to a whole lot of scans and complicated blood tests. But we, the, the estimates are that, you know, a quarter of the world or a, a third of the world have got fatty liver disease. And I think almost certainly in the Western world, it's higher than that. 
So, you know, when you think when you think about the magnitude of a disease, where one in four or one in three people, or maybe more common, have got this problem, it, that is a massive health problem. And what is amazing is most people don't know what the diagnosis is. Some of them have heard of it, don't know what it means. Plenty of people haven't heard of it. We we mentioned before that prior to nineteen eighty, you know, we didn't know about it. We weren't diagnosing it. So I guess there's two possibilities there. One is it actually didn't exist prior to 98, and this is a new phenomenon that has evolved as, I guess, our lifestyles have changed, our dietary patterns have changed, or this is an issue that was just not recognised. I mean, do you think this is actually a function of our changing lifestyle over the last 50 years? Well, I, I don't think... Some people in society have not changed their lifestyle. You know, think of Henry VIII. He would have been you know, gorging on pate... And, and would have most certainly had a, a fatty liver. So I'm sure there are there are anecdotal stories of, of dissections of humans showing fatty liver. As so I don't think it's just arisen in the last hundred years, but the actual collective knowledge of physicians suddenly being aware of it has has really heightened in the last f- four decades. And and I think it's gone from probably in the 70s and 80s when it was sort of first recognised. It's gone from something relatively uncommon to something amazingly common. So there's, there has been... Yes, it was always there, I think, but now it is amazingly common. So something in our environment has changed dramatically to cause that big change in prevalence. I mean, one of the things that we do see with the studies on fatty liver is that its increase in prevalence in the community really parallels the prevalence of the increase in obesity that we see. So the two, to some degree, go hand in hand. So what's causing it then, Will? Like... Well, I think the, the prime driver is our change in dietary patterns, um, high, um, very, very caloric-dense uh, caloric foods, um, high sugar content of foods, increased consumption of fructose and industrial fructose is a key factor, change in our lifestyle in terms of our eating patterns, our exercise patterns. Um, so I think there's multiple factors involved in the reason that we see this as a much more prevalent condition now than we did 40 or 50 years ago. So this is not some bizarre exotic disease. This is a lifestyle disease. Or yep. Almost always this is what's going on. It's caused by you're too heavy, you're eating the wrong foods, you're eating too much food, and or you're not exercising enough. Like that is 99% of fatty liver disease is a combination of those factors. Yeah, and I think think that's a good way to think about it because that encapsulates a lot of the treatment that is recommended for this condition and, and I think we'll touch on that as we as we go. So, John, a third of the world has got this condition. Does it matter? Like, who cares? If you're not going to die from it, who cares? Do you die from it? Does it kill you? It's a, it's a great question. And I think we have to look back and think about and what actually happens long-term with people who have fatty liver disease. And there have been studies which have looked at people over 27 years, and the Swedish have done some great studies on this. And they they actually showed um, that liver disease itself wasn't a major contributor to death. Um, It was only 10% of the patients who were studied over 27 years who died, died from liver disease. Of the 90% of people who died... um, over that period, it was either heart attacks, strokes or cancer um, that killed those patients. So actually, um, as far as the liver is concerned, there will be some patients who will develop progressive scarring and we call it cirrhosis when it's advanced scarring 
and there are problems that happen as a result of that, including liver cancer. But for the majority of people, the main problem is that of heart attacks and strokes. But is it, again, John, does it matter? Like, they're the commonest causes of death anyway. If you're gonna, you have to die of something. But if you've got fatty liver disease, does it increase your risk of dying from cardiovascular disease? Absolutely. Or stroke? Absolutely, both. And or cancer? Uh, but yes, it does. And, and we actually have got evidence now that if you reduce your fat within your liver, you reduce your risk of cardiovascular or major cardiovascular outcome. So heart attacks and strokes. So um, the, the, the real interesting thing, I think, from, from my perspective is that if you talk to a cardiologist or a stroke doctor, he won't be this, as aware of fatty liver as we are, um, even though the major impact of the disease that we see is not in our organ, it's actually in, in their organs. So, I mean, that's the, that's the interesting aspect of it. I mean, it, of course, we do see people who develop cirrhosis, the ultimate scarring of the liver and liver cancer, but the vast majority, they develop um, slow, progressive scarring and they die of actually something else. John, we've lumped, I guess, all the patients together with fatty liver and we've said that, you know, there's a pool of patients or the pool of not patients, there's a pool of just people with fatty liver. It's such a common condition. But within that group of people that have fatty liver, do you think we can be more nuanced? Can we pick out people that are at high risk of developing problems, cardiovascular problems or cancer or, or liver disease? Yeah, and, and you're, you're totally right, Will. This, is, this has also been described... Um, and, and the term having been used is simple steatosis, and it, it means simple fat, um, rather than steatohepatitis, which means fat causing liver inflammation. Uh, and so it brought, you know, just to, make, to simplify it, there are some patients who do have fat within their liver that doesn't seem to cause irritation. And there are other individuals who will have fat within their liver and it sets up a reaction. It causes inflammation it predisposes them to pre-diabetes. So, so what I mean by that is um, a condition where your insulin levels will be very high, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, you might become high, high levels of sugar in your blood, high levels of insulin, and these are all pre-diabetic um, states. But even if you, And even if you've got diabetes, your chance of having fat in the liver is markedly increased. I mean, about... 75% of people with type 2 diabetes, so they're the group of people that have insulin and insulin resistance, um, have evidence of fatty liver. Yeah. The, the two conditions are entwined. Uh, I, I mean, one of the interesting aspects of the progression of fatty liver is that there are some patients who have simple fat without any inflammation. They may have normal liver tests, but as time goes on, they will start to get abnormal liver tests. They'll start to get features of pre-diabetes, and, and presumably those patients will will develop um, the conditions that ultimately cause heart attack and strokes. And this really important finding you pointed out, John, that being diagnosed with fatty liver disease is a marker that you're at increased risk of dying from liver disease, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. Now that association isn't coincidence, and I think it's important because people there's a there's a perception that you know, all these funny things cause heart disease and other different things cause stroke and other different things cause diabetes. But actually the mechanisms that are causing fatty liver disease are the exact same mechanisms causing diabetes, heart disease, stroke and often a lot of cancers. 
So the hormonal pathways that are going wrong are predisposing you not just to liver injury, but to all sorts of common things that you see in people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So one of the things that I guess I think about when I see a person who has fatty liver is one of my jobs is to try and work out where on that pathway they are. Do, are they someone who's just has simple fat in the liver? And we can use that as a, really a canary in the coal mine as a warning that their metabolic health may be not as good as it should be? Or is this a person who's already got inflammation of the liver and potentially scarring of the liver and they're further down that pathway? Is that fair? Is that our job as liver doctors? That's our job. That's our bread and butter. And it's um, disappointingly slightly complicated often, I think, to nut out whether someone's liver is great or in a bit of strife. And that's why you need to see your GP or a gastroenterologist to get that your personal prognosis resolved, your liver prognosis resolved. It's quite an interesting history behind it, though, isn't there, Paul? I mean, when, when you and I were working together, that people were having biopsies to make the diagnosis. Someone had to look down the microscope and say, yes, there's fat and inflammation in the liver. And we rarely do that now. We, we don't often do a, a liver biopsy. You don't have to. Because often you can exclude all the other conditions and you're, you're left with fatty liver and the patient may have a high insulin level and be overweight, have a high waist circumference, other features. So you actually don't need to do that sort of thing anymore, do you? No, that's great news for almost everybody, really, that we don't need to do many biopsies. So we've got these great, we've got these great tools to try and nut out whether someone's got scarring or no scarring. We'll be talking about that in another podcast, won't we? Fibroscan, I think. Let's write that down and absolutely... <laughs> Paul, can I take you back a second, or a few minutes maybe, to the comment that was made earlier about fatty liver having a close relationship with people who are overweight or obese. And I just want to ask you the question, do you have to be overweight to have fatty liver? Great question. Simple answer, no. But actually being having fatty liver disease and not being overweight is uncommon, but... You can get fatty liver disease if you're normal weight and have a crap diet or if you're normal weight and don't do any exercise at all. So both of those, in both of those circumstances, you're changing either your body's response to calories and the hormonal thing, this insulin thing we talked about, or you're getting inflammation in your body. And both of those things cause liver fat. So just to summarise that answer, you can get fatty liver with a normal weight, if you eat terribly or don't do any exercise at all. So then we're going to move on to the really important thing of what do you do about it? Will, what do you what do you tell people to do about it? Yeah, well, I hope listeners have, have gleaned from the conversation so far that fatty liver is a complex disease. There are often multiple factors going in to cause fatty liver in a patient. So it may be an issue with the diet that the patient has. Um, there may be high in simple carbohydrates, i.e. sugars, fructose, soft drink, um, and that may be a modifiable factor. It may be related to their lifestyle and the lack of exercise or the wrong type of exercise. There may be other factors in the patient's lifestyle, alcohol and smoking. There may be other risk factors. There may be metabolic risk factors like diabetes, like hypertension, like hypercholesterolemia, so these are modifiable factors that need to be addressed and optimised. There may be some factors the patient can't do anything about. One of the things that we haven't mentioned is that 
some aspect of fatty liver may be genetic and there are genetic markers and they're beyond a patient's control. But for most patients, I think looking at the patient's lifestyle, working out where the modifiable risk factors are and attacking those is the management. You, we'll, you, sorry, Paul. Well, just to pin you down, so when you see somebody with fatty liver disease, give me the three or four top dot points, simple things you tell them to change or do. Well, I think most people I see with fatty liver in in our liver clinic, and we have a specialised clinic dealing with fatty liver, have are, are overweight, so they're over healthy weight, and many of them have diabetes, which is poorly controlled. So for the patients I see, our management strategies include optimising their diabetic control, so trying to improve their insulin resistance, and that may be partly through medication, but part of that is through getting the, asking the patients to reduce their weight. And we know from studies that a weight loss of around about 7% of their total body weight can produce a meaningful change in the amount of fat in the liver, and often in conjunction with that, it can improve their diabetic control and their other metabolic risk factors. So will they, just to summarise the dot points, lose weight? And if you could lose 7%, fantastic. But even lower amounts of weight loss are going to improve your liver function and reduce your liver fat. Not resolve it, but improve it. Improve your diabetic control if you've got diabetes. Markedly reduce refined foods or processed foods in your diet. So eat stuff made by another nature. Avoid stuff made in a factory and that arrives in a plastic bag. And take up some exercise. And exercise... Whatever you do, you're going to have to do it for the rest of your life. You know, it's nice resolving it over six months and then going back to baseline. So take up something you enjoy and walk with a friend, do club sport, have a dog, walk with a partner after dinner. So do simple things. Paul, just to to hone on the discussion about exercise, it actually is important also to discuss physical activity. And, and I think the difference between physical activity and exercise is not widely understood and there was a brilliant study it was done in london in the 1970s that looked at this in detail and it was the first study that really described two different sorts of people who worked in the same working environment and showed that physical activity really had a difference in the outcome and and the the work environment was the london bus and and one group of people with with the bus drivers and the other with the conductors and the bus drivers simply sat down and drove the bus all day and the conductors went up and down the stairs every day and they showed that the the drivers had heart attacks four five four to five times greater per year than than the conductors so it was an enormous difference and it was first shown in the 1970s so physical activity is the activity you do in your workplace whereas exercise is actually in your leisure time you you actually exercise during during the time that you have outside work so it's important to remember that that people have some people have very sedentary jobs they just sit at a computer they don't they don't move at all and it's important i think to remind people to get up to, to go for a walk at lunchtime to actually not just pick up the phone and talk to your colleague but actually stand up and walk around so that you're actually doing some incidental exercise hold on john i don't understand the the bus driver and the conductor both did their activity or non-activity at work yeah that's not exercise isn't it no no they, they did phys- the physical activity is during work hours so the physical activity of the bus driver was zero because he just sat down and the conductor went up and down the stairs so the physical activity is really important for your cardiovascular risk correct not necessarily just exercise. Correct. Got it. So so it's really important if you do have a sedentary job to try and create 
physical activity during that job. And it, it highlights that the treatment of this condition needs to be very patient-specific. It's hard to be prescriptive because people need different things. They have different work environments. They have different social environments. They have made different lifestyle choices. And so we need to be quite nuanced in the recommendations that we make to patients. I'd like, I'd like to bring a point about weight loss because I think the approach that we've taken towards patients has really changed in the last 10 years. And through a lot of understanding um, and some of the books that we've all read in, in common uh, about the, the effect of insulin and the way it's an incredibly strong hunger hormone. And I think in the past, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, doctors used to blame their patients for not listening. And, and they would say, oh, our patients have not lost weight. They're just not listening. But actually... Insulin is driving hunger. And we know this from, from diabetic patients who have type 1 diabetes, where they have a lack of insulin. If you give insulin, patients gain a lot of weight. In fact, they present with weight loss if they don't have enough insulin. And, and in, in type 2 diabetes, where you actually have too much insulin, patients are hungry. And if you talk to them, they, they talk to you and say that they, they feel hungry at night, they're grazing at night. And so actually increasing physical activity and exercise can reduce your insulin levels and improve that hunger hormone, which is driving people to maintain or increase their weight year by year. Yeah, really important point, I think. So your, your insulin levels, which are driving a lot of this, is you can change them yourself with all these lifestyle interventions the other thing i think we've not quite covered is that the whole condition is reversible there's not many diseases of western society that you can resolve totally with relatively simple lifestyle interventions so even if your liver's got scarring that scarring you can melt away with the right lifestyle interventions can i tell an anecdotal story Go for it. Um, I, I, I was going to say, must you? But um, <laughs> okay. I will do it. And I don't think the patient will mind. I won't mention any names. But I saw a patient about a year and a half ago, and he came to me with abnormal liver tests and clearly had fatty liver once we'd excluded all the other possible causes. And we talked about dietary methods and we talked about intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting, where you where you have a period of fasting either certain days or certain hours of the day, and he he chose to fast for sixteen hours and eat only eight hours of the day, so it's called the sixteen eight diet. And we'll we'll talk about this at, an, at another another time. But he came back to me after the COVID lockdown, and he had lost forty kilos. And when I saw him, what really terrified him is that I said to him, you know, according to the blood test, you actually fulfil the definition of diabetes. And he was completely unaware of this and was terrified because his dad had diabetes and had died of a heart attack. And when he saw, saw me and, and heard these words, he actually totally listened and, and intermittently fasted and also increased his exercise and increased his physical activity. And a year and a half later, he lost 40 kilograms. His liver tests were completely normal. His insulin levels was in completely the normal range. It had been extremely high, one of the highest insulins I've ever seen. So he was really... Um, you know, di fully diabetic, who completely reversed it through lifestyle changes. Mm. But I must say, John, that's a that story is an exception. Like the, it provides hope, though. But the your body's really, really tricky, especially with your weight regulation, and it fights back. Yes, I think most you know everyone can lose weight when they start their diet, but then what happens is your hunger hormones increase to try and make you gain back your weight. And your metabolic rate, that's the amount of calories you're burning just existing, that reduces. So you're, there's all these natural mechanisms fighting back after your 
a month or six weeks into your diet and you've lost five kilos, try to put that weight back on and almost, almost always it's successful. So again, I think it's really, really important for people to recognise don't beat yourself up if you can't lose significant amounts of weight long term. But there's all these other lifestyle interventions, change your diet quality, exercise, and even some non-Western medicine prescribed medications can help um, with fatty liver disease. What are you referring to there, Paul? On the, I, I recommend people take a probiotic, um, and that is a capsule of healthy bacteria, and that reduces insulin resistance, changes metabolic risk, and improves your liver biochemistry in small studies. And there's also some evidence for turmeric and um, milk thistle. I mean, we haven't touched on the microbiome, and it's it's almost too big a topic to cover tonight. But it is another factor that's been implicated in fatty liver, and adjusting the microbiome may be a very important treatment. And you know, almost certainly, I think the when we talked about processed foods, they're probably not just calories; it's they're changing your microbiome, and that microbiome is more inflammatory. It's making chemicals that cause inflammation, therefore damage. So Mother Nature yeah. chemicals are anti-inflammatory. Processed chemicals are pro-inflammatory. Do we need to explain what the microbiome is? What is the microbiome, Yeah, Joe? what is the microbiome? The microbiome is the population of bugs that live inside our bowels. And for almost all of my scientific life, um, I was under the you know, perception that they were inert and did nothing. But actually it's becoming increasingly evident that they're really, really important in our health in a variety of ways. And we, we discussed this last week, maybe off air, but it's in, it gives people some perspective. These are an enormous number of bugs. There's more bugs living in your gut than there are other cells in your body. So in a way, the largest organ in your body is the bacteria that, and, and organisms that live in your gut. We're just a walking microbiome transport medium. We That's are. what we are. I think just back to lifestyle, it's important that, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of easy to say, it's incredibly difficult for people to change their lifestyle and we need to be mindful of that. And I think you touched on it, Paul, it's okay to try different things and some things will work for one person and not work for another and that's to be expected and, and in fact, that's, that's a success to have said, look, that's not for me, I can try something else. For some, intermittent fasting will be good. For some, a five and two diet will be good. For some, a very low calorie diet using... OptiFast or some other low-calorie process will be good. For some people, you know, may need other intervention. John? Can I ask about alcohol? Because it's a common question that comes up and patients say, well, will say to, the, to me, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic, I, I only drink you know, a glass or two at night. Can I continue to drink? Now, what's your advice, Paul, for people who, who just wish to have a glass of wine at night who've got fatty liver? Um. I don't worry too much, I must say. Um, If someone says to me, Paul, I want to have a glass of wine when I go out for dinner, is that fine or not fine? I would not be fussed at all. If they said, Paul, does any alcohol, does a lot of alcohol make this potentially worse? I would say yes, of course. People know that. Can I hypothesise then, would that be the same? Well, if someone had advanced scarring, would you say the same? No, there's a scale. So... You know, benign, trivial end of fatty liver disease, don't worry. Have a glass or two of wine a couple of nights a week. I don't think it'll change anything, actually. If someone's got quite significant liver disease, scarring, damage, I would, I would ask them, I would suggest to them that they should be having no alcohol long term. I mean, if we're purist about it, then, then there, 
there was a hint from from academic papers that small levels of alcohol may be harmful in some individuals but the problem is is that it's part of our society it's part of our life and and some people gain a lot of pleasure from it so uh, if there was a small measure of harm um a small risk of harm then maybe it's an acceptable risk yeah i mean i i agree with with both of those comments i think we can be over prescriptive but i think we need to acknowledge the evidence that alcohol does cause significant social harm in some people and also can cause liver harm in some people now for those on the milder end of the scale i think the occasional glass of alcohol will make no long-term difference to their outcome for those with more advanced liver disease then I think it's about optimising all the things that can be optimised. And one of those things may be to avoid alcohol. There's one really important lifestyle food that is beneficial for fatty liver disease, helps reduce liver inflammation and fat, and scarring that we haven't touched on tonight. Coffee, 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 coffee. Absolutely. It's so, coffee time. Yeah. So if you've got fatty liver disease, have coffee. Uh, if you're already having coffee, have more coffee. Yeah, I mean, I recommend it routinely to patients. I think it's a really simple measure. And I'm conscious that many of the um, recommendations we're giving to patients with fatty liver involve a lifestyle change or some think withdrawal of some of the things that they enjoy and telling patients that it's okay, you can keep drinking coffee. In fact, sometimes drinking more coffee will be a benefit is sometimes quite sort of heartening for patients. So... There's signals for the benefit of coffee. There's signals for the benefit of curcumin or turmeric, although there's some caveats of that. We've discussed that in another podcast. And milk thistle, there's some potential benefits. What about other vitamins, Paul? Any, any vitamins that you would ever recommend for someone with fatty liver? Look, I, there's literature on vitamin E, uh, but I rarely prescribe it. It's complicated. Um... It would be my third line thing that I would pull out in somebody whose liver I'm worried about, not the first line or the second line of treatment, because it's got associations with things that are bad, for example, prostate cancer and cardiovascular disease. And those, those associations aren't proven, but there's, there's some flags they're suggesting it's not just a simple benign vitamin therapy but more so in the diabetic population rather than the non-diabetic population so so for me if i see someone with a, a high alt lifestyle measures aren't working so alt is one of the liver enzymes so if i see lots of inflammation on their blood tests haven't been successful with lifestyle measures talked about maybe medicines to help them lose weight i will offer them vitamin e if they are not diabetic and, and I would say, you know, this is this is purely anecdotal. Uh, about fifty percent of the patients, you'll see a drop in the liver tests. I don't know what your experience will is like. Yeah, I don't use a lot of vitamin E. I tend to, a bit like Paul, it's at the bottom of the drawer, or at least maybe in the middle of the drawer. And if nothing else is working in a patient who I'm really worried about, then it may be something that I try at that stage. I am sort of concerned. We we've discussed a lot about fatty liver and its importance in liver disease, but we've also touched on its importance in other diseases, cardiovascular disease, and it's important to remember that that fatty liver is part of a sort of multi-system process, and it's easy to get too focused on the liver and and lose sight of the bigger picture here, 
and vitamin E is one of those medications which has been shown to perhaps uh, increase all-cause mortality in some patients, and that, that concerns me, so I don't use a lot of it. All right, we've been talking for long enough, so it is time to wrap up the conversation. So we might just recap, and I think we've learned a lot tonight. I found the conversation really beneficial. So fatty liver, as we've already said, is extremely common. About a third or a quarter of the adult population have fatty liver, but a small proportion of those develop damage to the liver and scarring of the liver. Um, But it is a marker of a lot of other diseases, and most of the patients with fatty liver are at risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, um, and even particular types of cancers. Um, John, this is a treatable condition? Yes, absolutely, with lifestyle measures and uh, and possibly some other drugs um, that we haven't necessarily touched on today. But this is a, a condition that can be reversed. People can be improved. The risk of having an adverse consequence of the disease can be removed. And so, Paul, if people are worried that they have fatty liver or have been told they have fatty liver, what should they do? Do they speak to their GP or where do they go? Yeah, information is power. So I think if there's lifestyle issues that you're... Generally, if there's lifestyle issues you're worried about, talk to your GP or your healthcare professional or or if you've been diagnosed with a get information. All right. Thanks, John. Paul, you've been listening to Liver Health. Good evening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Liver Health Pod. We hope you found it interesting and entertaining. But remember, while we are doctors, we are not your doctor. You are unique and you deserve personalised medical advice, which is essential for making informed decisions about your health and well-being. Because the information presented in this podcast is general in nature, it may not be relevant to your circumstances. It is not a substitute for professional advice from your healthcare professional. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the organisations we work for. In fact, those organisations don't even know that we've made this podcast. So if you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe. You can also leave a review and a rating which will help others find us. Thanks for listening. Till next time.